This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Life has all kinds of changes built into it. And sometimes when a family or a friend is going through something, you want to step up and help. And from time to time, that involves becoming a caregiver. Many Canadians are experiencing the act of being a caregiver for a loved one at some point in their life. And they often struggle to find appropriate supports. So advocacy groups are calling for a national caregiving strategy to mitigate the issue. Megan Gilmore has written about this for Canadian Affairs and wants to tell you a little bit more. Hey, good morning, Megan. Good morning, Dave. Megan, let's start with some of the broad numbers. How many caregivers are there in Canada and what are some of the expectations for those caregivers? Sure. So first, I'm going to tell you, when we talk about caregivers for the purposes of this conversation, we are discussing unpaid caregivers. Uh, so not people who are employed as people who provide care, like PSWs. Yeah, so yeah not, not, a, not a PSW. We're talking about a yeah. friend or a peer friend, or a friend, family member. Yeah. yeah. So right now, uh, estimates say that one in four Canadians are currently caregivers to their family or to their friends, but that number is set to rise to one and two. So that's like half of Canadians. That's pretty much everyone. Um, It is estimated that unpaid caregivers provide three hours of care for each hour of paid caregiving that an individual receives. And this equals a whopping 5.7 billion hours of care. Um, That would be equivalent to having 2.8 million full-time workers which would cost $97.1 billion in wages. So unpaid caregivers are providing upwards of $100 billion of work a year to provide care for family or friends in Canada. So Megan, what are the demographic breakdowns on this in terms of the people who are oftentimes taking the role of a caregiver? Yeah, so like one in four Canadians rising to like pretty much like half of Canadians, like that means that anyone uh, could be a caregiver. So there's a wide variety, but there are some uh, interesting demographic trends that researchers have observed in the data. So first is that caregivers are still predominantly women. Uh, If if you are a woman, particularly if you are a daughter or like a niece, like if you are a woman in a family, you are more likely to be the one who will take on the caregiving duties uh, when they arise. But besides that, um, the women who uh, do these caregiving are often racialized. Uh, There's a good number of caregivers who uh, come from other countries or uh, care for family members who live outside of Canada, but definitely there's a, a, a large percentage of racialized, racialized women who are in unpaid caregiving roles. That also has to do with like cultural expectations and all that type of things. Um, about 28% of caregivers are caring for parents 
And then as well, caring for children who have disabilities or some other sort of illness that would require more intensive care beyond just being a parent. And then we also have what are called double duty caregivers. So those are those people who are like professional caregivers, like they're PSWs, or they work in the healthcare system at some point in their job. But then in their personal lives, outside of their work, they're providing unpaid care to a family member or a friend. Mm -hmm. So Megan, when you talked about the pure raw numbers there, the number of people who may have to take on the role of a caregiver at some point in their life, I think that explains the urgency in regards to a national strategy, but why are groups calling for a national caregiving strategy? Sure. So one is just what you mentioned, the numbers. So we have this combination of a rapidly aging population in Canada where a greater, like a large percentage of Canadians will be seniors or people over the age of 85. But we couple that with declining birth rates. So we have more people getting older who will require more care. We have less children being born who can grow up and help provide that care. So you're seeing a weakening of the natural family caregiving support systems. So we're going to need some help uh, coming from other sources to provide in the gaps. Um, one of the main reasons why people will argue that we need a national caregiving strategy is because the federal government is actually already uh, in charge of implementing policies and programs that impact caregivers. And a national caregiving strategy is just a way to bring all these things together under one umbrella and have there be more like concentrated and coordinated efforts. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then the goal, um, so as anybody who has followed this segment knows, one of the things that we like to discuss is federal, provincial, territorial jurisdiction. Uh, so while there are some things that fall under the realm of federal jurisdiction, there are several things that fall under the uh, realms of provincial or territorial jurisdiction, particularly healthcare, particularly finding those home care nurses. Um, and the hope from some advocates is that if the federal government starts to talk about this in earnest, that that will motivate provinces and territories to also say, hey, we need to develop our own caregiving strategy that is unique to our jurisdiction and to the demographics of our particular area. What about particular areas of focus? Because caregiving is a big, broad spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, so if you talk about things that the federal government is already involved in, there's a few key things. So tax law, um, there is, for example, the Canada caregiving benefit that you can receive uh, if you're an eligible caregiver. And uh, Christian Freeland, uh, who's the Minister of Finance and the Deputy Prime Minister, her mandate letter actually does say that this will be converted into a tax-free refundable benefit. Um, Currently, it's a non-refundable credit. Uh, that's been listed in her mandate letter for several years. That has not happened. Uh, so one of the things that does fall under caregiving is tax law discussions about the disability tax credit um, also would fall under there. Another area of federal purview that impacts caregivers is employment insurance. There are caregiving leaves that you can get under EI if you are caring for somebody, particularly at the end of life. Uh, there are some concerns that depending on how the application process goes for that, somebody may be approved for the leave after the individual has already died. Um, so just how do we streamline these processes and make sure that people actually get it when they need it? And then as we've alluded to earlier, immigration plays a big 
big role in this. We have a significant number of caregivers, paid and unpaid, who come from other countries. So if if let's say you're a PSW and you're here on a temporary work visa, what happens when that visa runs out? What happens if there's suddenly a conflict between you and the employer and you may not be able to do that that job anymore? Um, and then also concerns of let's say you're an unpaid caregiver, but your family members that you're caring for live in another country. How how easily can you get back home to care for them? Right. Um, yeah. And then there's a whole bunch of other areas. So we're talking about things like respite care, helping people find respite care, supporting caregivers who have jobs. Most caregivers have other jobs that they do. Mm -hmm. um, so how do human resources departments care for caregivers, particularly caregivers who may be young caregivers and are at the beginning of their careers but are already caring for somebody in their family. So I don't know if this counts as zooming way in or zooming yeah. way out, but what <laughs> about the disability side of this conversation? Because yeah. obviously caregiving and disability, there tends to be a hand-in-hand -hand relationship here, yeah. but this isn't necessarily specifically a disability conversation, but there are all kinds of disability implications. Yeah, there are tons of disability implications. And I think this is an example of a policy discussion in Canada that isn't necessarily classified in what we would call typical disability policy conversations, but actually has a lot of relevance to the disability policy conversations. And there's a lot of overlap. Uh, there is, first of all, a very basic one. People with disabilities are unpaid caregivers, right? So um, I am legally blind. Uh, my parents are seniors. At one time in my, at one point in my life, I expect that I will be taking on a certain element of care for them. Okay, who's going to drive legally blind Megan to the doctor's office with my senior parents? Right. right so there are right. like that. That's a very real practical consideration. But I was at I was at a conference last month organized by the Canadian Center for Caregiving Excellence. They were holding a summit to really launch discussions about a caregiving strategy. And there was so much discussion about the disability benefit. Um, and there's people who are involved in caregiving who are very concerned about uh, this benefit being created and it being created well, uh, because if we can support people with disabilities to live independent lives, maybe they won't need as many caregivers, right? Like they, there's there's ways to look at this from different, different angles. Also a lot of discussions about the disability tax credit uh, and who gets it, who doesn't get it, all these little things in there. Um, because for many families, their caregiving of their children is caregiving for a child with complex medical needs or disabilities. And they are very aware of some of the policy conversations around disability. So this is just a reminder that disability policy conversations impact every single Canadian, regardless of whether or not you have a disability. And those of us who have disabilities, I think we need to recognize that and leverage the knowledge and expertise that maybe non-disabled people bring to these conversations. Yeah, not to give away too much here, but AMI Audio is going to be doing something special for uh, December 3rd, International Day of Persons with Disabilities. And uh, I'm coming flying in off the top rope with about a three minute rant about how public transit and housing policy is disability policy without being explicitly labeled as so. So uh, right. pay attention for that one on December the 3rd on AMI Audio. Uh, Megan, uh, I, there's obviously a lot to to this conversation, yes. what are some resources or things that you want to put on people's radars if they want to learn a little bit more about the topic of unpaid caregivers or maybe just caregiving more generally? Sure. So we've already mentioned the Canadian Center for Caregiving Excellence. 
out of the Azraeli Foundation in Toronto. They've been doing a lot of work on this, and they're planning to do more work, particularly in the areas of provincial and territorial advocacy. So having provinces and territories think about, hey, maybe we should have a national, so maybe we should have a caregiving strategy in our jurisdiction. Also, the National Institute on Aging out of Toronto Metropolitan University has been calling for a national senior strategy for more than a decade. We don't have one, but they like part of a senior strategy, they would say, would include support for caregivers. So those are some advocacy organizations. But one of the things that is really fascinating about this topic from a policy perspective is that there is cross-partisan support. So there is support from different political parties. And I think sometimes some individuals may try to label certain political parties as these are the ones who care about disability issues and these are the ones who don't. And I would suggest that you make that statement with a lot of caution because actually most political parties do have policies that intersect with this. They just have different ideologies about how they believe the, what they believe the role of the government is when it comes to providing these services. So this is a cross-partisan issue. Different parties will go about it in different ways, but there are in elected officials in all parties who care deeply about this. So that's something to watch for. And then in case we haven't mentioned it in a couple of minutes on the show, can a disability benefit... <laughs> consultations are going on about regulations. That is part of this conversation. And we don't know what's going to happen with that, but that that is part of this conversation. So keep your eye out on that if you aren't already. Yeah, those consultations underway until December the 21st, and you can get involved uh, via phone, via email, via the web. I don't have those points of contact handy at the moment, but maybe I can pick up that phone number again. I know it was in uh, yesterday's uh, script in the edition of the show. Megan, thank you for this. Thank you. Have a great day. That's Megan Gilmore, a reporter for Canadian Affairs. You can check out her article at CanadianAffairs.news. CanadianAffairs.news. You can find Alex Smythe at the AMI Weather Desk. Alex, it's a bit of a hodgepodge across the country right now with uh, some unusual temperatures way up north. Yeah, Dave. So uh, I wanted to explore how kind of the weather pattern system forecast seem to almost have flipped so far this week. So Ontario and the prairies are dealing with cold conditions and especially in Ontario, a lot of snow starting today and into tomorrow. Well, you would assume those conditions would get worse the more north you made your way. But however, in, in Callowit up in Nunavut, it's enjoying a spell of unseasonably warm weather. So Wednesday, the northern capital is expected to actually be warmer than both Toronto and New York City. And this is all due to an eastern trough that has brought the frigid air that in conditions that we're currently experiencing in Ontario. So a pocket of warm air has been created as part of the system, and it's going to hover over a Callowit until Thursday. So for the next two days, the conditions will be 17 degrees above normal. So a high of plus two is expected today and a high of plus three is expected Wednesday. For Toronto, as I mentioned, the Callowitz gonna be warmer. Toronto is expected to be a high of one tomorrow, while New York City expected to be a high of two. Now don't expect these conditions to last too long because come Sunday, well, the high is gonna be back down to more seasonable conditions at minus 13 degrees. But 
it's a little uh, break of seasonably warm and uh, uh, welcomed weather before the wintry cold really takes hold over the region. Yeah, they'll uh, they'll take that. They'll take a couple days around the freezing mark in Iqaluit in uh, late November, early December. Dark, 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 dark time of year around Iqaluit. Alex, thank you for this. Thank you, Dave. That's Alex Smythe at the weather desk coming up after the break. The distillery Winter Village has begun its winter wonderland. Toronto community reporter Mara Hutchinson will give you the details. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.